0: Morning. I have the privilege today to bring you guys God's word. And I'm excited because as we worship our God, I'm just I got so caught up in the reality that God loves us. That truth alone, the fact that God loves us, that he has made available to us a replacement for our hardened hearts to be replaced with flesh in a heart that desires him is this so amazing it's enough to just camp there for the rest of the time to just unpack what that means but as we look today in ephesians 4 i think that god is going to deal with a very real issue in our lives and that's the issue of authority so before we get in would you guys join me in turning to ephesians 4 verses 17 through 32 It reads, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the fertility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted in its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put falsehood and speak truthfully. Uh, those, um, I'm sorry. Therefore, each of you must put away all falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, there's so many things that distract us from You and what you desire of our lives, we so easily get caught up in worldly things, Lord, wanting to have wealth and acclaim and success in our jobs. And not that those things are bad in and of of themselves, Lord, but Father, I feel as though they often replace the ultimate value and authority you desire to have in our lives. I pray that as we prepare to hear from you, God, that we would do do just that, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the words from a living and universal God. That it is not man who speaks, but it is that you who speaks through us. And so I pray that as the words go forth, Father, would they be received as one who has great authority, and that is you. Father, soften our hearts, for we know they're prone to become hard They're prone to become callous. God, I pray that you would soften them, prepare them to receive your word, that they may bear much fruit in our lives. And we ask all these things in Jesus name. Amen. I'm excited about this text today. I mentioned that before. I'm excited because the issue of authority is something that we all can relate to. If we're honest, we all, to some degree or another, have a problem when it comes to authority. This problem, the origins of this problem go well beyond just our experiences or patterns or traditions. The origins of this problem, this issue with authority, go all the way back to Adam and Eve. We can see in Genesis 1 and 3 where God creates man. He establishes relationship with man. He gives them purpose to man, but then he gives boundaries to man. These boundaries weren't meant to withhold any type of, withhold anything good from man, but more so they were meant to protect man from harmful things. Adam and Eve were told that they could, live, they could eat from any tree in the garden, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That one restriction was enough for Adam and Eve to take it upon themselves to think about, am I going to obey God or am I going to do what's right in our, my own sight? They decided to do the latter, and so in them doing what was right in their own minds, they, the consequences of their actions now tremble and ripple across all of eternity. The Bible makes clear that from one man's sin, all of creation has now been cursed. When we think of authority, oftentimes a few questions come to mind, often questions of who is going to be the people in authority? How are they going to exercise their authority? What accountability is there going to be if they abuse it? These are all real and justifiable questions. But if we were to dig a little bit deeper, if we were to search underneath these questions, we would find that there's really more than meets the eye. Underneath these questions often lie fear and distrust. We're afraid to put ourselves in a position where we no longer are in control, but now we are at the mercy of others. By default, this causes us to think of ourselves as the primary and supreme authority. We believe that the only person who's going to know what's best for my life is me. The only person who should be able to determine how I should live is me. Me, me, me. It's all about me. This, the flaws of this views, however, the flaw of this view and the holes that are lie within that statement are that oftentimes our self-centeredness leads us down paths that we ultimately regret. Think of all the times you've led yourself into Bad decision after another, only being left with regret. Only being left with feeling as though, man, this mistake, I hate that I did it, but now I have to live with the consequences for the rest of my life. Think of how different life would be if you got caught doing your dirt. Think about that for a second. The most heinous of sins that we are afraid to expose, not only to God, but to others. Think about if we actually got caught doing those things and what our lives would look like. Over and over again throughout God's word, we see human beings. We see people like you and I thinking that we know what's better. We know what's best for our life. And we totally negate God's authority and God's rule. The one thing is clear is that when man decides to do what's right in their own minds, it always leads to destruction. All the time. It never works out how you thought it was going to work out. So the question I want to ask today and the question that I think the text is going to bring out for us is that who? Holds the final authority or who has the supreme authority over your lives. The Bible only gives us two options to choose from. It's either God in his word. Or it's us. God in his word or us. Two choices. That's it. Paul has done a wonderful job for the last Three chapters unpacking all of the great things God has done for his people. He unpacks what it means to be a part of the family of God. Paul has instructed us in his doctrines of God. He's even prayed that we be enlightened in our understanding of grasping in greater depths the truths of God. But now he's going to exhort us. Now Paul, is, his aim is to nudge us in a direction that leads us into greater intimacy with God and with one another. He's going to call us to something. He's going to require obedience. He's going to require action. But before he can do that, Paul's going to start off by saying, I need you to understand who I'm coming on behalf of, who I'm speaking on behalf of. And that takes us to verse 17. Let's read that. Paul starts and he says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live As Gentiles live, Paul begins this chapter and even this section in a completely different tone than he has in previous chapters. Paul, Paul's tone has a little bit more bass in his voice. He's a little bit more aggressive. He wants them to understand, look, I need you to pay attention, y'all. What I'm about to say is going to have lasting impact if you don't get this. He urges them, he insists, come close, come close. I need, you to, I need you to get this, y'all. School is about to be in session. The time of understanding is now. And he says, and then he reminds them by saying, and I want you to know that this is coming in the name of the Lord. Paul had no intention for them to confuse his ambitions as one that was promoting himself. Paul wanted them to fully understand that I'm I'm coming as a messenger. I'm speaking on behalf of God. Therefore, what I have to say, you can assume is co-signed by the creator. It's co-signed by this this man, Jesus, you say that you put your trust in. This man, Jesus, who you say has the ultimate authority in your life. This is who I'm speaking to you on behalf of. Think of it in terms of if you went to your mailbox and you opened the mailbox up and you pull out a letter and you... know. Flipping through bill, bill, bill. Oh, letter from the White House. As you peel back the layers of the letter and the envelope, you see the seal, the White House stamp. That immediately causes you to poke your ears up. It changes your posture. It's been val- its authenticity has been validated because you know it's being it's coming from a place of power. Unlike a letter that you will receive from the White House, this message, this text has way more power than that because it's coming from God, the supreme authority over all things. I pray that when we open God's word as a church, that when we stand here Sunday after Sunday, when we're out in our homes, when we're on the street, wherever it may be, when God's word is opened up, I pray that we would... Come before it with that same type of reverence. I, pay that, I pray that we would see it as, as I read page after page and line after line that the God of the universe is speaking to me. And God doesn't just speak to speak, He, he requires something of us. Pastor John alluded to it earlier that when you read your Bibles, don't feel the pressure to rush. We, we scroll through pages and pages, not even giving God the real opportunity to speak to us. When God speaks, he requires something of us, so that demands that we are attentive. Slow down. Paul summarizes a way of lifestyle that the Gentiles lived or were living as, and he summarizes that by the futility of their thinking. What does that mean? What does it mean to be futile in thinking? Fertility is just really another way of saying vain, vanity, emptiness, uselessness. Isn't that what all our ambitions and all of our dreams and all of our think everything that is about our life, is? Isn't, does, doesn't that fall within that? Everything we do by nature has to do with storing up something for ourselves. Wealth, fame, status, acceptance accomplishments. It has to do with us. All of the ways of us as people and sinful beings always lead to something. And that something is what is best for me. Being in the South, I think it's important to know that probably many of us in this room grew up in church. It's always interesting to ask people what their story is, and they always start with, man, I've been a Christian all my life. I've grown up in church since birth. Well, the latter of that may be true. You may have been in church from birth on to now, but you definitely have not been a Christian all your life. There's no category for that in the Bible. Ephesians 2 makes it clear that we all are dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul goes so far in Psalm 51 5 to say, surely I was sinful at birth. I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Do we grasp the magnitude of how sinful we are that there is no everyone starts at square one sinful, separated from God under his wrath. That's all of our stories. The question is, has God interjected in that story? See, for the Christian, we all recognize that we're sinners and separated from God and deserving of God's justice and his wrath. However, the good news for us is that we've placed our trust in Jesus. We recognize that Jesus is the only one who can offer salvation. He's the only one that can provide a righteousness that we could never earn in and of ourselves. And so therefore we acknowledge him as God, as supreme ruler and authority, and now allow him to do the work that we can never do. Make us more like God. God takes our sin and replaces it with his righteousness. God takes our sin on the cross, bears it with him, bores it with him himself, is resurrected. And now he says, I offer that freely to all those who would receive it. All those who are wanting to be forgiven of their sins. All those who are wanting to know this awesome and amazing Lord. All those who want the beef to be squashed. It's readily available to you. I offer it to you as a gift. That is the story of us as Christians. We've acknowledged that we are sinful, that we're broken, and that Christ is the only one that can really fix us. Given that reality that the Ephesians or the Christians at the time in Ephesus, they they knew this reality. They understood it. They could repeat it back to you probably better than you could. However, Paul's having some difficulty distinguishing between their life and the life of the non-Christians in Ephesus. The, 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 the waters were really murky for the Ephesians. I, I'm not seeing a change. I'm not seeing how this truth is impacting your life. You live just like they do. It's important to know that Ephesus was a city full of idols. It was the place to go when you wanted all of your pleasures satisfied. You could liken it to Las Vegas, Sin City. You could liken it to New Orleans, Mardi Gras. You could liken it to South Beach. All of these places have the reputation of being come here, enjoy everything that you need to satisfy yourself is right here. The gates are open. As Paul and other missionaries and Christians went to the city and shared this good news and as people became, became saved, they weren't removed from their context. They didn't go and huddle up together and be totally removed from the world. No, they were they remained there. They were in their context. They saw the same friends that they used to party and club and indulge in pleasures with. They saw those guys every day. They saw family members who worshiped different gods and different and stored up different idols for themselves. They saw those people. They had dinner with those people. They remained in the context, though they were saved from out of it. Paul's declaring here, he's declaring to the the Christians of that day, he says, look, you no longer can live like that. I'm not suggesting this to you. I'm telling you, you no longer can live like that. So Paul describes how Gentiles live. This isn't foreign to Gentiles. This, isn't, this wasn't something foreign to the Christians of that day. They knew exactly what their old life was like. This was to serve as a reminder because it's so, we're so often quickly to forget about what God has really brought us out of. We're, it's so easy for us to start looking back at that reality and that life and to say, man, that, that seems way more appealing than you, God, right now. I miss those days. I miss doing those things. I miss hanging with those people. Man, God, I think I'm going to turn back and go in that direction. And so we wander and so we drift. And that's what we see happening with the Ephesians, the, the Christians in Ephesus. They had drifted. After describing what the futility of their thinking is, he now goes into the specifics of what what were some markers or sorry, some identifiers of these Gentile people, if we read starting in verse 20, I'm sorry, starting in verse 18, he says they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. He starts by saying they're darkened in their understandings. They're unable to understand the things of God. Not only that, as he goes down, he says they're separated from the life of God. They have no stake or no stock in God's family. They may claim to, but they have no stake in that. They're not a part of that. They're separated from God. He describes the state of their heart by saying they're hardened and that their hardness keeps them ignorant of the things of God, keeps them ignorant of who God really is. If we want to know what that looks like, think of every single faith and religion outside of Christianity. They will recognize a God. They'll acknowledge a God. However, they don't recognize Jesus and Jesus in Christianity is saying all of those other gods are fake. The one true and living God exists and he is he sent his son, Jesus Christ, on your behalf. He says that their hearts were callous and they were ignorant of who God really is. He goes into how they're callous and they indulge in the pleasures of the flesh. What are the pleasures of the flesh, though? Galatians 5.19. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Galatians 5.19 simply says that the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. This isn't an exhaustive list, y'all. So if you sit there and you hear something and you don't hear something on the list, include that as well, because he says, and the like. Paul just wants to remind us that these are the things that are contrary to to God. These are the things that are natural to you. You don't have to work at these things. They just come natural. By nature, we do these things. This is how Gentiles live. And lastly, he says that they're full of greed. Greed. They just can't get enough of it. They, they've got to have more and more and more. Nothing satisfies the thirst. This is how you once walked, he says. This is how you once lived, he says. And this is what surrounds you even now. Those same people that you used to be, they're right next door. They're not going anywhere. I remember a time just shortly after I had been walking with the Lord and my freshman year of college and a lot of my friends from uh, overseas had moved to go to school and go to schools in Texas. And so I remember coming to faith and knowing who Jesus is. And and I remember getting that call from one of my closest friends saying that, hey, y'all, hey, man, we're going to have a party down at my parents' lake house. I had been to the lake house many of times, and so I knew exactly what that meant. All we were going to do is get drunk and get high and and there's going to be plenty of girls. While I was there, I remember wrestling with the, the, the tension of, man, should I go? I really want them to know Jesus. I think I should go there. I need to be a light. I need to be a witness. But also with the reality of like, man, I've only been walking with the Lord for a few months now. I don't know if I'm strong enough to go into that type of environment. So after deciding to go, I remember being down there and my friends had heard how I was a Christian now and I no longer did those things that I used to do. I was a different person. But what's funny about non-Christians is that they really don't care about that. So it wasn't long as we were walking and we were. Hanging out that I was the designated driver. And so I'm driving and I'm taking them to all the clubs on Fifth Street and doing all these things. And then we come back home and that's where the real party came out. It wasn't too long before that beer was extended to me. Come on, Rich. You know how we get down. Come on, man. Let's put one back for old times. I was strong initially, but then eventually that beer, that sip... Turned into one. That turned into two. That turned into five. That led to the, hey, Rich, you want to smoke on this? Nah, man, I'm good. Hey, Rich, you want to smoke on this? Yeah, man, why not? That night, I remember being the highest and the drunkest that I had ever been in my entire life. So as a way to not embarrass Jesus all the more, I decided to stumble my way to the bedroom. As I'm laying there in my own vomit, seeing nothing but stars, I remember hearing God's voice clearer than I had ever had before. And he said something so simple to me. He said, Richard, you don't have to live like this anymore. I've I've set you free from this old way of life. And I'm calling to embrace me and to enjoy me and to pursue a life of real joy. Follow me. We all are but one bad decision in a way from ruining everything. Let us not be so arrogant to think that just because we've been walking with the Lord for an extended period of time, that we're not susceptible to creating the grossest of sins and destroying our lives and the lives of others. I've seen too many friends. I've seen too many pastors who had an appearance of being strong, but then fall susceptible to, susceptible to the worst of sins and lose everything. That's the deceitfulness of sin. That's the deceitfulness of our flesh. It convinces us that we can actually manage it. Paul has to remind them that the way that they once lived and are even still living doesn't point people to the life that God had now offered them. So he continues in verses 20 and 24 With identifying the error in their understanding. Verse 20. That however is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. And were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Somewhere down the line. As many of us have either done or do currently. We started to believe that our old way of life was better than the life that God is offering us now. A shift of thinking had occurred because at no point had they been taught that this was acceptable. There was no room for excuse where they could say I was ignorant of what God actually required of me. I was ignorant of what God had done for me, and therefore, in light of what he's done, I was ignorant of how I should live. Paul is saying, no, that's not the case here. In the same way you came to faith, you heard about what God required of you. In the same way as you walked along Christ, you were taught about how you should live. But now the onus is on you. You are the only one responsible for your decisions. Cultural Christianity compartmentalizes Jesus. It only requires you to attend a Sunday service or a weekly Bible study. It only requires you to acknowledge Jesus in a couple of areas, but that you have control of the rest of your life. Please hear me when I say this. That's not biblical Christianity. That's never been the teachings of Jesus. Jesus can't re- be reduced to an accessory on our possession. Jesus can't be reduced to just Jesus. I'll take you out and put you up as I see fit. No, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus didn't die for you just so that he could be tucked away in the closet, brought out when only when you felt it was acceptable. No, Jesus is after our entire lives. Jesus wants to be Lord over every area, our money, our finances, how we use our body, how we spend our time. He wants all of that. He doesn't share. He does not share. He does not share or does not intend to share anything with anyone else. He wants it all for himself. And that includes you and I. This obvious disconnect was there. They weren't living a life worthy of the calling that they had been called to. And Paul makes it clear this is a deliberate, deliberate act, a willful choice. And they weren't be, going to be able to shift blame. If you've known me for any time or you've been to my house, my wife and I, we love watching YouTube videos. One of my Favorite YouTube videos. Some of my favorite YouTube YouTube videos are watching people eat crazy things. In particular, I enjoy watching people eat spicy things, hot peppers, especially kids. Those are the funniest. I remember watching a video where these people began to unfold and explain how spicy this ghost pepper really was. They say it's a thousand times spicier than a jalapeno. And that's followed by giggles and chuckles. <laughs> it's not that hot. It can't be that hot. They ignore the truth of the manufacturer by saying, "Warning: This is hot." So after they eat it, what's most appalling is that after they eat it, they really start to blame the pepper for being hot. They're crouched on the ground in agony and pain, and it's the pepper's fault. How is it the pepper's fault? That's absurd. But isn't this what we do with sin? We decide to sin and then we want to blame someone or something or even blame God for putting us in that position. James makes it clear that that's not the case at all, that none of us can blame any sin that we do on God because God tempts no man with evil because he can't be tempted by evil. That when we are, when we sin and we're tempted, we're lured away by the wicked desires that exist in our own hearts. The responsibility is on us. But let's keep reading and let's continue going down the verses. It says that in verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted in its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Two things he points out here. One, that we should put off something. Put off your old self. It's deceitful. It only is meant to corrupt you. Don't be deceived that your old way of living prospers you in any way. No, it corrupts you. It defiles you. But then he says, put on something. Put on the new self. Because it leads to righteousness and holiness. And if you do that, you'll be like God. Isn't that our desire? Isn't that our, our greatest aim? Is to, God, I don't want to be bound by things that defile me, but I want to live an existence freed from all those things that used, to, that used to enslave me and pursue your righteousness and holy so I can be like you. What a great God that is, that he would offer us his own righteousness. It's free. It's accessible. It's made available to all of us. If you're in this room today and you've just felt this entire week, has this been difficult? Sin has been owning you. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many boundaries you put in place, no matter how much accountability is, it's like you cannot defeat that sin. I've been there. We've all been there. God doesn't leave us there, though. God reminds us that every day, every opportunity, every moment you have the opportunity to put on the new self, this righteousness, this grace, this holiness, it's made available to you. All you have to do is grasp it. All you have to do is receive it. God's love is deep and his grace is wide. No one is beyond God's reach. God wants nothing more for each and every one of us than for us to be holy, for us to be righteous, for us to be free of guilt and shame and condemnation. That's what God wants for us. Don't believe the lie that God withholds good things from us. No, believe the truth that God doesn't withhold anything that ultimately would lead to our destruction. God is good. The last verses in 25 through 32 are really just the the nitty gritty of what it means to be a Christian. There isn't any deep theological explanation of what Paul is about to say. It's put out plainly right before us. Paul lists out several exhortations. They go as such. If we read 25 through 32, he says, one, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor because we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are angry and do not give a foothold to the devil. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Don't let unwholesome speech come from your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit their listeners. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. And then finally, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other for God in Christ has forgiven you. This laundry list of exhortations, I, Paul desires for us to notice two things. One, they're all relational commands. You cannot apply these scriptures if you live in isolation. Which means clearly you cannot obey all that I require of you if you think that all I merely want from you is a personal relationship and there is no horizontal relationship at all with one another. That's a false Christianity. But that's American Christianity. Everything's about a personal relationship with God. And that's a partial truth. Biblical Christianity is, as we saw in Ephesians 2, it's always been grounded on the fact that we get God and we get one another. I cannot grow in my holiness. I cannot grow in my righteousness. I cannot grow as a Christian unless I'm plugged into a family. As a church, we here at Cornerstone, we desire, one of the reasons why we push proximity, it's because we realize that true life change happens when we live life with one another. We've all been a part of churches where we can come day in or week in and week out on Sunday mornings and put on our church smile. And yet no one ever really knows us. And then we go back home wrestling with the same sins and committing the same sins over and over again. And then we wonder why nothing is changing. God has given us his people. God has given us a local church where we can come and we can not only sit under the authority of pastors and elders and deacons, but now we can also be held accountable by one another. The whole goal of the family of God is so that we can peer into one another's lives, identify the sins, speak truthfully to one another, and then walk alongside one another as we pursue righteousness and holiness together. That is the church. Our heart is that we want to, our desire, our reason for planting this church is because we want to be a church where the majority of our people actually come from within this neighborhood. We want people to be able to walk to this church, not only so that they can have a church nearby. That's great. It's awesome to be able to walk down the street and come to church. That's, that's awesome, but, but that's not it. We want each and every one of you to experience what it means to be a part of God's family. And the best way to do that is to live close to each other. We also want you to understand what it means to be on mission together, which is provide those on the outside an opportunity to see our love for one another. How can people glorify God if they don't even see the love of God existing and in close proximity? It's impossible. So if you're here and you've come from far away, if you come from different neighborhoods, you're welcome. We're not saying that. We want you to come. Come, please. What we are saying is that we are going to challenge you and we are going to call you to come and be close and to join. Because we really realize, we, we feel as though the best way that you will grow in your walk with the Lord is to be a part of a family. To live closely with one another. To live everyday life with one another. That's how we grow. That's how God has set it up. The second thing he wants us to take notice of is that God God calls us from something, but he also calls us us to something. God's not after our behavioral compliance. God's not after moral obedience. That in and of itself. No, God's after pointing us to a greater hope and a greater future. He desires to deal with the cracks and the crevices in our lives in hopes that every area of our hearts, every area of our lives will be in submission to the lordship of Jesus. What's best for us as his people is that we would love him more. That's what's best for us. This is what Paul is saying that he needs us to take notice of. Going down the laundry list, the first thing he mentions is that we should put away falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Paul's calling us away from religious hypocrisy. It's easy to smile and shuck and jive and never to be known by anybody. It's easy to only have to deal with a person for one hour and never be forced to live authentically or transparent with them. God's people should be known in their community as those who are honest, whose words can be taken seriously. We should be reliable. Oftentimes, our greatest enemies are the the ones that smile the biggest in our faces. Unity can only be preserved with honesty within the body, that we would speak truthfully to one another. Gracious and tender, but that we would be truthful. Track with me down where he says, be angry and do not sin. Culture tells us that there's only two ways to deal with anger. One is to give into it. The other is to suppress it. If you're anything like me, it's easy for me to bottle up my anger. It's easy for me to push it to the side and say, no, that's not really anger and and label it with a more acceptable sin. I'm just frustrated. I'm not angry. I'm just tired. Those are acceptable things for the Christian. But to be angry, nah, we don't want to be angry. God gives us a command, though, he says, be angry. Be a part of a church long enough and you're going to be angry. Believe me. Anger is not a bad emotion because God himself gets angry. God can't be just. He can't be hungry. Uh, He can't be holy if he never gets angry about anything. God is no hippie. God gets angry at injustice. That's what makes him just. The problem with anger is not that we get it, not that we experience it. The problem is with what we are angry about. Ask yourself the question, the last time you got angry, what did it have to do with? I can almost guarantee that it had something to do with something that bothered you, something that inconvenienced you or something that you didn't get from somebody else. Our anger is always centered on ourself and God is saying, no, be angry. But the righteous anger is be angry about the things that God gets angry about. That's righteous anger. Be angry, he says. Just don't sin. <clears throat> unrighteous anger is anger motivated by inflicted uh, injured pride, spite, malice, animosity, or the spirit of revenge. That's unrighteous anger. Spite. Malice, animosity and a spirit of revenge. God is calling us to be righteous in our anger like he is. The second command with our anger is that he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. This isn't to be taken literal. I remember the first time I learned this passage, I just assumed that, man, so you're telling me that if I get angry at my wife, that I only have until the sun comes up to deal with that issue. That's impossible. A lot of times. I don't feel like talking to her right now. I may need a day just to calm down. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is just warning us not to nurse our anger, not to tuck it away thinking that it's going to take care of itself. Nah, we need to confess our anger. Anger is that isn't dealt with. It's like a smoldering ash. It looks cool to the touch, but I dare you to grab it. I dare you to fan a little air and oxygen on it and you're going to see its true colors. You're going to see that it's been there all the time. It's been there this whole time. Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Pursue, pursue, eagerly go and deal with your anger. Don't tuck it away. In describing anger though, now Paul brings in a third a third a third party, excuse me. He says, Give no opportunity to the devil. What does the devil have to do with this? What is the what does Satan have to do with my anger? Satan understands that there's a fine line between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Satan loves to lurk around angry people because he knows that it's just a matter of time before he can exploit that entire situation and create havoc and devastation at a greater magnitude. Has has someone offended you before? And instead of dealing with that anger and that offense and going to them, you kind of tucked it away. Not only did you tuck it away, but it seemed as though every time you saw them, you were interpreting their behaviors. If they looked at you, I can't believe they looked at me like that. <laughs> if they raised their, eye, their arm up, oh, what, you trying to fight now? <clears throat> everything comes back to, man, I, I, I'm not really angry, but it seems as everything they, that everything they do bothers me. The next thing you know is that it only takes that one time for them to turn you on. And by turn you on, I mean simply to make you angry. And then the next thing you know, you're hurling insults. You're talking about their mama. You're calling them all types of names. Why is that the case? That anger has been suppressed. That anger has been tucked away, and now Satan's gotten involved. Satan loves for us to see our offenses through a magnifying glass. He loves to blow them out of proportion because he knows that if I can get you to think that you're entitled to your anger and you're entitled to your issue with that person, then I know it's just a matter of time before I can totally divide that entire relationship. Satan's tactics are clearly listed out here. Think about the sound bites that play in your mind after a difficult conversation. I've rarely heard or seen people, when they talk about what a person said, that it's actually in the context of the conversation they actually had. They're, they pull out certain things that really have nothing to do with the original issue, but yet they're acting as though it's like, that's facts, that's, what's, what's, what, that's what was said, I've never seen that. All I ever see, all that I've done myself, has been taking sound bites of an entire conversation. And then once we get to the bottom of it, we realize, man, they didn't even say that at all. I, I totally took that the wrong way. Satan lurks around looking to exploit our anger solely because he knows that if, man, I, if I can divide one, I can divide many. Entire churches have been separated and divided and destroyed all because of a minor offense of one. Left undone. Left undealt with. One offense between two turned into a split of an entire body. I want to encourage for those of you who are here today who have beef with somebody. God is making it clear it's your responsibility to go to them. Make it right. There's way more at stake than your pride. There's way, way more at stake than your character or your reputation. God's name and his glory is at stake. Go to them. Paul goes into stealing. Stealing. This one caught me off guard because I wouldn't think of a church community as one that had thieves in it. I think sometimes, though, we have redefined what it means to steal. So in an effort to make sure we're all on the same page, let me break down a simple definition. Stealing is when you take something that doesn't belong to you without the permission of someone else. That's what stealing is. The eighth commandment tells us. We should not steal. Thou shalt not steal. As Paul talks about stealing, though, there's a progression here. He doesn't just call us away from not stealing, going from uh, stealing to not. He says, no, I want you to think differently about it. He lists off in order. He says, first, a person can steal in order to have. Isn't that the motivation of theft? I don't have something, so therefore I take it so that I can have it. But then he goes into, secondly, that you can work in order to have. The only difference between me and a thief is that I have the means to be able to, pro- to go after the things that I lust or desire after. That's the only difference. Third, you can work in order to give. The first two ways describe both legal and illegal activity. You can steal to get something. You can work to get something. Both satisfy our greed and our covetousness. One is legal, one is illegal. However, both are sinful. That is why Paul doesn't stop there. He's saying, I need you to have a shift in your thinking. I need you to understand that I'm not just calling you to conform to a behavior. I'm calling to renew your minds and to think differently about how you live your life. Don't work to gather things unto yourself, but now work so that you can gather things and provide things for others. That's the gospel. Our work and our lives have really nothing to do with us. The greatest joys that we experience are when we give to others versus when we receive from others. That's the Bible. In this church and churches alike, we're so consumeristic. We only think through things from the lens of what what's best for me? How how can I get more? How can I? Hoard more things for ourselves. I, I, I pray that we all would think differently from this day forth of men. How can I serve the Lord? What will give me ultimate pleasure? Would that be me serving others or would that me be being served myself? What a radical, radically different way of thinking. When we now consider the welfare of others over the welfare of ourselves. Paul is pointing us to a family where this should take place. A family where we don't have to be concerned about preserving self, but we can now say I can relinquish myself. I can I can free myself of that slavery from that bondage of thinking I got to think about myself and myself only. But now I can live amongst a group of people who already know all my needs are going to be taken care of because every single person thinks about someone other than themselves. This is good news. He tells us to speak, but only speak what's wholesome and helpful to his listeners. I want to camp here a little bit. Because I I know myself, one of my greatest struggle is with my words. I'm prone to just be overly blunt and overly honest. And I, I don't realize the impact of the weight that sometimes my words carry in the lives of others and those that I love. Paul, or the scriptures when describing the tongue, it says in Proverbs eighteen twenty one that the tongue has the power of life and death. Those who love it will eat its fruits. We've got to be careful with our words because they carry so much power. Growing up, I remember my parents telling me about stories of how their teachers and their, and their professors told them they, they, were, they never would amount to things. That they would never be anything. My dad told me a story where he overheard my hit my grandfather saying that that kid ain't gonna be nothing. Even in his fifties, even in his sixties, that 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 thing, though he know his father loved him, that rung true in his life. The sting of that lasted for decades, and even till his day. A quote by Ray Orland says, Oh, the invisible wall of estrangement. So easy to erect, erect, so hard to demolish, cruel words and deeds linger in the memory for decades, filtering down even to the next generation. Time erases nothing. Time erases nothing. Though time may not erase anything, the good news is that God redeems even our greatest hurts. Will we go to God for healing of the wounds of others? Will we confess those hurts to him and confess that to one another so that we truly can be healed? Paul is saying we need to be careful with what we say to one another. Because words can either build people up or they can tear people down. Paul sidetracks a little bit while going into another laundry list where he says get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and every form of malice. When he says get rid of, he's suggesting something, y'all. We have to be aware of what's going on in our hearts and we have to ask God to search us so that we can really know what's going on and diagnose the real issues. Our work The things that God calls us to can't be done in our own strength. But there does need to be work done. We depend on God to produce these things in our lives. But what goes hand to hand with that is that we would actually take steps out in faith and actually apply what it is God desires for us to do. Paul says you need to get rid of these things. We need to be proactive with them. But then lastly, as he closes after telling us about all the things we should do. Or shouldn't do. He ends with this last exhortation. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God has forgiven you. We are kind to one another because God is kind to us all the time. We can be compassionate on others because God is compassionate on us all the time. The sin of others shouldn't catch us off guard because we know we're guilty of those same sins. Compassion. Christians should be known as the most forgiving people of all creation because we've been forgiven the most. We know what it means to be forgiven. How dare we not extend forgiveness to those who have wronged us when every day Christ has provided endless supply of his forgiveness to us? Be kind, be compassionate. Other versions say tender hearted. And lastly, forgive each other for God and Christ has forgiven us. For us, it's easy to yield to the authority of God because we know God is not like man and that he would abuse the authority that he has. God withholds no good thing from us, at least for those who are his children. If God withholds it, he knows that I'm withholding it because it's going to destroy you. He always has our best in He always has our best in mind. His intention, intentions are never malicious. That's the God that we serve. For those who aren't Christians here. You've heard about this Jesus and you've heard about what he's calling for his people, calling from his people. But you're not really sure how do I come to know this same God? So let me lay it out plainly for you. The God of the universe created all things. Not only has he created all things, but then he creates man and he established purpose. He gives them dignity. He gives them he gives them he provides for them in ways that they couldn't provide on their own. But he gives restriction. Those restrictions led Adam and Eve to believe that God didn't have what was really best for them. And so they took it upon themselves to disobey. They rebelled. And as a result, sin enters into the world. Because of that sin, all of us are born with it. We're born disconnected and separated from God. And therefore, we are lost. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can say. Going to church, reading your Bible, trying not to curse, doing all those things will never make you right with God. Jesus, God says, I need to, I need to send somebody on your behalf. I need to, I need to have somebody live the perfect life that you could never live. And he does that with Jesus. Jesus comes into the world, lives amongst us, never sins, never commits any flaws, lives a perfect life and then is crucified. He's killed. He's killed. After being killed, he is he hung, hangs on the cross, he's buried, and then three days later he raised from the dead, showing victory that and and authenticity that he truly is God. He's not like us. And so what does that mean for you and I? That means that there's good news where the Bible says that the wages of our sins, the things that we've earned, lead only to death and hell. God says that you can have eternal life if you place your trust in my son, Jesus. Romans 10 is clear that if we confess our sins and we believe in our heart that Jesus is God, that we can be saved. That's the good news. That's the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, that we've recognized our desperate need for saving. And that salvation comes only in Jesus. We invite you. God invites you to come be a part of his family. There's only that one condition. Everything else, it's a gift. All you have to do is receive it. Don't leave here today thinking that you'll have tomorrow or the next day. Life is fragile. Feel free at the church to come to myself or Pastor John. If you just have more questions and you just want greater understanding. This is the place where you can come to hear about Jesus. This is the place where you can come to know this true and awesome God. We invite you this day. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, so much has been said, so much has been brought to our attention, and we feel um, if, there, if anyone is like me, Lord, you can just feel inadequate. Father, you can just feel as though, man, I don't, I don't know if I can live in this way. I don't know if I can succeed. I don't know if I can be perfect in that. But God, I thank you that you're not calling us to pull, up, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but you're calling us to recognize what your will is for our lives and to submit to your authority. Father, you provide us with the help that we need in order to please you and to honor you. And so, God, I pray this day. That hearts would be encouraged and that um, that our lives would look differently tomorrow than they did even today. Father, it's a journey. None of us are perfect. But, Father, I pray that as a family, we all would commit to pursuing righteousness and holiness. And that can only be done in relationship with one another. Be with us as we leave here, Father. Keep the things that we've heard and learned present on our minds, and I pray that we would bear much fruit in our lives. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.